you get home from vacation. You needed some time to get away and disconnect from the world. So, for five days, you've been oblivious to the news and everything happening in the world. But time to get back to reality. You need to check your crypto investments. A year ago, your buddy turned you onto a cryptocurrency that has doubled your money. 42000 to 84000 in a year. <laughs> Not bad. And considering this coin is considered stable, you can't see a downside. You log in and do a double take. The value of your investment sits at $4.20. That can't be right. You blink, refresh the page, log out, and log back in. It's still the same. $4.20. Overnight, your investments tanked. The coin's becoming all but useless. This was the reality for hundreds of investors who bought into Terra Luna. And it's stories like this that keep people away from considering crypto altogether. But we've already begun to move towards a cashless society. And while cryptocurrency isn't massively adopted, it is a technology that's begun to disrupt our society. And like all disruptive technology, the sooner you understand it, the easier it'll be to adapt to your daily life and to avoid potential scams. I'm Jacqueline Swan, and this is Technality, a podcast that explores technology and the future we're headed towards. And today, I'm mining for crypto info. It depends on what questions you asked, and and uh, so I don't necessarily go out of my way to be. But some of the, like someone asked me, "What's the miner do?" And it's you can't really talk about that without being somewhat technical. But meet Henry Kim. I'm an associate professor at Sri School of Business at York University, uh, and I also operate the Blockchain Dot Lab. It's a virtual lab of different researchers, these different researchers and different interests. We've been able to work with. Lots of different organizations, United Nations, NIST in the United States, Ontario Ministry of Agriculture and Rural Affairs, Bank of Canada is, is one new collaborative partner. We've just initiated a, a half a million dollar project to study the topic of digital currencies, including central bank digital currencies. Edward Bellamy proposed a debit card system in his 1888 novel, Looking Backwards, 2000 to 1887. It used a punch card system linked to government credit, all of this predating the creation of computers. So the concept of digital currency isn't anything new. The actual application, however, is. DigiCash was a cryptographic-based e-payment system in 1989. The company unfortunately folded in 1998 because they entered the e-commerce market way before it was an actual market. Since then, we've adopted several methods of online payment, and along with that, we've seen cryptocurrency, with Bitcoin not launching until 2009. Uh, so people are accustomed to sort of digital forms of money. What is important to distinguish is this difference between what's called object-based money and accounts-based money, right? So whenever you use, like, Interact, or the bank, what that means is that you hold an account somewhere, transferring money from you to someone else is in effect telling your bank, send money from my account to someone else's bank's account. 
it's called accounts-based money because there needs to be an account. But more importantly, it also means that there are these financial institutions or intermediaries that actually sort of custody or hold on to these accounts for you. And what cryptocurrencies come in is something called object-based money. I'm giving cash from my wallet to your wallet. There is no account and there is no intermediary. So the money itself is the object I transfer. The nice thing about Bitcoin is that it has all the nice features of cash. The fact that there's no one who oversees what's going on and keeps track of what's going on. So there's no intermediary, but it also has this additional benefit where you can send money to someone else. Uh, they don't have to be right there physically. If I asked you to name a cryptocurrency, you'd probably say Bitcoin. The two words have become synonymous, and for good reason. Bitcoin established the potential and credibility of blockchain tech, which is a concept we'll get into in a bit, but just think of it as a public ledger that everyone can see. In North American sports, basically the athletes are already rich. They don't need to be um, corrupted by gamblers. So in the Bitcoin world, you want to find miners that are already rich. How do you prove to the world when you don't know who you are in a decentralized world that you're already rich? You prove to the world you're already rich by saying, I have access to computational power because the more access to computational power equals rich in an electronic network. You want to pick miners that actually have access to a lot of CPU power because that's rich in the Bitcoin world. How do you prove that someone has access to a lot of CPU power? The Bitcoin network sends out an incredibly difficult puzzle. And only someone with access to a lot of CPU power can solve this incredibly difficult puzzle because it just requires a lot of computations. And when that miner solves that puzzle in Bitcoin network, it happens roughly every 10 minutes. Then that miner says, hey, you won this puzzle contest. You get 6.25 Bitcoins. And your job is to actually make sure to verify all the transactions that occurred roughly in the last 10 minutes. You do your job, you do that. And then your blockchain, that you've just, the block that you just added, that becomes the official block for everyone else. And all these other copies of the blockchain in the world must be replicated to that. This gets to one of the problems that many people point to Bitcoin. In order to do this, what that means is there are thousands of miners, hundreds of thousands of computers around the world doing CPU cycles like crazy just to solve this puzzle. And only one miner when solves a puzzle. So all these different computers trying to solve this puzzle, running their CPUs, equals about the annual electricity output of Ireland. And people have a lot of problems with that much energy consumption for the mining, which is why a lot of people have concerns about the environmental impact of Bitcoin mining. But interestingly, what we know is that this notion of everyone trying to solve these puzzles to be able to prove that they're rich, to be able to win the privilege of, of verification and getting Bitcoins, this is called proof of work. And what we know is that proof of work is a really elegantly great way to ensure that the system is proper and it isn't corrupted because Bitcoin network itself really hasn't been corrupted. But the downside is that it really, really consumes a lot of electricity. Also, it takes time for all these transactions to be completely verified. Blockchain is a term that gets thrown around a lot. But there's a chance you're only 50% aware of what it is. Imagine it like a stack of blocks. Every time a new transaction happens, it adds a new block. Repeat ad nauseum. At any time, anyone can look at this chain of transactions to see where the money came from and where it went to. It's all anonymous, you can't see who owns the wallet, but you can follow the money. The whole implication is that 
tampering with the numbers is nearly impossible. There's also the issue about Bitcoin mining, which is very essential, you know, consuming a lot of electricity and there's environmental concerns. So anyway, Bitcoin has a lot of issues for its use as payment. What a lot of central banks are doing, Bank of Canada, pretty much most of the nations, the world, the countries in the EU, what they're doing is they're saying, could we have a digital currency, digital cash, that's actually not a Bitcoin, that's a legally tender Canadian dollar that's object-based, that goes from one wallet to another. So it has a convenience of that. It has the fact that there's no central intermediary, there's no financial institution. So it's got the convenience of cash but then also the convenience of being digital. So you don't actually have to be physically. Finally, that it actually is at the end of the day still administered by the Bank of Canada. And therefore it's not this sort of funny money that blackmailers and illicit drug dealers are using. It's not terribly widely adopted. It's not widely used as a form of payment. It's not a great form of payment because it, the prices of Bitcoin move so much and you want stability. Secondly, it's a lot of people have sort of exploited the fact that it's, it's anonymous and, and, uh, and you can't keep track of what's going, uh, who's who's paying what. To like, so you know, people buy people buy single list drugs online, or people trying to uh, blackmail, uh, shut down systems. Bitcoin is, it's decentralized. There is no central intermediary. That's kind of why people want to do Bitcoin. But then you lose the regulatory control. You lose stability. You don't want to be in a place where. Too many people are using Bitcoin because then you lose control and you can actually have financial contagion. One of the cryptocurrencies just effectively blew up, cost, you know, somewhere in the tens of billions of dollars worth of money was lost. And, and Koreans, South Koreans, lost their life savings. That's because it's this unregulated cryptocurrency. The Canadian government, the U.S. government, they don't want stuff like that to happen. So they want to give people the convenience of digital cash without the downside of worrying about instability or runs and contagions and all these things that come with an unregulated, not fiat currency. There's more cryptocurrencies than fiat or normal money. I don't have an exact number for how many cryptocurrencies there are. Arguably, it's somewhere in the tens of thousands. But most of them are scams. And most of the ones that are legitimate won't last for very long. So what exactly happens when a digital currency fails? Especially when billions of dollars are invested. Because unlike banks, there's nothing to back them up when everything crashes. After the break, we'll look at how Terra Luna imploded, wiping out $40 billion in value. How does something worth tens of billions fail over 72 hours? Well, apparently building your financial system like a seesaw is the answer. A stablecoin is meant to be less unpredictable than other cryptocurrencies. They peg their value to another asset, like the US dollar. One stablecoin equals one dollar. Crypto investors can essentially park their money in a stablecoin to avoid the unpredictable ups and downs of the market. Popular coins being Tether and, up until a few weeks ago, Terra Luna. Now, I'm not going to go into the nitty-gritty of how Terra Luna works, beyond one Luna coin will buy you one Terra coin, which was always valued at one USD. The value of Luna would fluctuate to balance everything out. 
Imagine it like a seesaw. You trade one Terra for one Luna, and when the values change, you exchange your Luna for Terra. Luna was kicked off the seesaw, though, when people started burning their Terra in exchange for Luna. Why were people doing this? Well, there's a Terra savings account called the Anchor Protocol. The account gives you 20% back on your investment, which is pretty good. Just before the crash, though, about 75% of all Terra coins were in an Anchor Protocol account. Anchor, however, announced they were replacing the incredible 20% rate with a variable rate, which apparently didn't sit well with people, so massive amounts of money were withdrawn from the accounts. Traders were scared, so they also started exchanging Terra for Luna. This in turn created a surplus of Luna, plummeting its price. Essentially, Luna was kicked off the seesaw, ruining the balancing act. The most amazing, amazing thing about the Terra Luna crash, without getting into the innards, is that everyone, every reasonable person looked at it and said, this won't work. It was just, in one way, a very elegant way to create what's called a stable coin. So create this cryptocurrency that was meant to be pegged to the US dollar. What other sort of legitimate stable coins like Tether and Circle do is if they have a dollar of a stable of, of Tether, which is a stable coin, then somewhere they keep a dollar of US dollar as reserve. So it's a, you know they're not like minting something out of thin air. They mint a dollar of the digital cash. There's somewhere else in, they ha- in the back, they have a dollar of real cash. Terra Luna wasn't doing that. So they were basically minting all these stable coins without backing it up. Every single person with an economics degree or even without looked at it and said, this, this won't work. It worked okay in what stable times, but if you have like Bitcoin crashing, which you know was going to happen eventually, the peg that maintained the stable coin and basically the system basically broke down. Any rational person who looked at it could have said, this will not work. And lots of people sort of held their nose and said, well, I'll make money off of this anyway. This is something what you find in the cryptocurrency world. Cryptocurrencies are the shiny new things that are intimately tied with new technology. It's really easy to make a cryptocurrency. Some people estimate could be as many as 100,000 cryptocurrencies. 99.9% of that are worthless, and a good chunk of that are just out and out scams. The crypto market is intricately intertwined. When a coin crashes, they all come down. And while Terra Luna wiped out approximately 40 billion USD of its own worth, it brought other cryptocurrencies down with it. Billions were lost, investors were pissed, and central banks and governments have now turned their attention to the crypto market. I mean, the UK announced plans to regulate stablecoins, and the US Treasury Secretary said it's not yet a threat to financial stability, but has the potential to amid this recent crisis. South Korea, the home of Terra Luna, saw over a dozen people arrested and has begun looking into regulating stablecoins as well. But... How do you regulate something that's main purpose is to be unregulated? When a cryptocurrency becomes large enough and there's money to be made, then what happens is that institutions step up, companies step up, and companies are formed because there's a business opportunity with respect to that cryptocurrency, with respect to that blockchain-based systems. You can regulate those uh, companies. The ethos of most most of these blockchain-based systems is actually not to have 
inter government intervention be completely decentralized. It's almost like a libertarian notion. The notion of regulations runs completely counter to the libertarian ideas of a decentralized network, which is ostensibly you know, why blockchain-based systems were implemented in the first place. One of the really interesting things about blockchain is everything is transparent. So if someone steals money, you can actually see the money in their wallet that they've stolen. The big, big problem is that blockchains typically do not require identity. So you can basically, you, you can see all these wallets with IDs and the wallets, but you have no idea who actually owns these wallets. So that's the, that's the conundrum. You have this great transparency, but at the same time, you don't actually have identification to an individual. When something gets regulated, that's usually a sign it's catching on. Sure, my grandfather now knows what a Bitcoin is, but I don't know too many people who actually own them. However, especially in Canada, I'd be hard-pressed to find someone who doesn't at least have a debit card. So how far off are we from seeing mass adoption of crypto? I do not see a future where Bitcoin is used in developing in the global north for payments. I think there are too much volatility, and I think there's central bank digital currencies. So if I have Bitcoin in my account, I actually do, or it's sold some, but I'll buy some later on. It's not because I think people use it as a medium of exchange or for payments. It's because I think that Bitcoin has characteristics of gold. And there are a lot of people that own gold and for reasons, they think it's a store of value. They think it works well in inflation times. And they think if there's an apocalypse, holding Bitcoin, or rather holding gold along with canned goods will be really good. Though some of those people have actually sold some of their gold and bought Bitcoins. So I, I do think, and not necessarily because I'm an ap apocalypse uh, believer, but more because I, I think there's a there's a significant amount of the world that will own gold. So I think if people are willing to own gold, I think that people are willing to own digital gold, which is Bitcoin. So I think that's the investment thesis for Bitcoin. I think the investment thesis for Ethereum and certain others is that their platforms become very big and popular, which they have, and owning those cryptocurrencies will escalate in value as there's more mass adoption. I think rather than sort of saying generically, I think you'd almost have to go case by case. But one of the things that I keep on forgetting until I sort of listen to podcasts or talk to people where Bitcoin is useful as payment is in the global South countries, right, where there's massive inflation or there's idiosyncratic tax policies, or you can't take money out. Those cases have anonymity and the flexibility and the convenience of Bitcoin comes in handy. It's not the right answer to say, when will cryptocurrencies reach mass adoption? I'd almost have to say, when will Bitcoin reach mass adoption? Or when would Ethereum or Solana or Decentraland reach mass adoption? And that's just have to look case by case. But here's my honest opinion. I would say... In terms of what will become popular, in terms of, you know, holding a cryptocurrency now and it will be still be there and appreciate in value and have appreciated in value, say, five to 10 years from now, I'd say Bitcoin and maybe half a dozen to a dozen cryptocurrencies and that's it. That's it. Everything else will fall by the wayside. I think if you're a speculator, if you're a gambler, you make a lot of money on it and you could lose a heck of a lot of money on it as well. Before we finish, I asked Henry what he hopes the crypto space looks like in a few years. My thought and my hope almost is that in the future, 10, 15 years from now, we'll talk about Bitcoin the way we now talk about AOL, which is we don't. But in 1995, AOL and Netscape 
was incredibly important. If you want to talk about the internet in 1995, you talked about AOL. AOL was almost synonymous with the internet because it was it as the premier or the best known internet service provider was the means by which most Americans got onto the internet. It, so it became this thing that was synonymous with the internet. And people didn't know exactly what the internet was going to become in 1995. They just knew that that AOL was a big piece of it then in 1995. Of course, afterwards, you know, the Amazon came, Google came, Apple came. People figured out what the internet was. People figured out e-commerce. People figured out social media. And AOL, that it existed, which is the means by which people became aware of the internet, sort of went down as these other things became important. And of course, AOL, I think, still exists, but really no one pays much heed to that. What I'm saying is that Bitcoin is the means by which people became familiar with cryptocurrencies and blockchain and Web3, and it served an incredible purpose right now. But me, as a researcher in blockchain, me as someone that's really interested in where Web3 is going to become in the future, I hope we get past the financial speculation of, of Bitcoin and we get on to this incredible dem- democratization and peer-to-peer and these amazing potential potentialities of Web3, and maybe 10, 15 years from now, these potential use cases will have been fulfilled, and we won't talk about Bitcoin so much yet. Money is a social construct. We all agree that the loonie equals one Canadian dollar. We buy Bitcoin because we agree it will bring a value to us. People just need a reason to start using it. The internet was seen as something that would just be a fad, but it's now become essential to our everyday lives. People just need a reason to adopt it into their lives. And right now, crypto doesn't quite offer that. The public at the moment views crypto as being something you can use to buy monkey JPEGs and potentially lose all your money to. But cryptocurrencies have also come a long way, primarily Bitcoin. And there's good reason to believe it will make waves and become massively adopted at some point. Maybe it will be Bitcoin. Or maybe Bitcoin will go the way of AOL. Because at the time of recording this on July 23rd, 2022 at 12.32 EST, Bitcoin sits at $22,271.40 USD. The last time Bitcoin had this valuation was around December 18th, 2020. So, I'll let you be the judge. Thank you for listening to Technality, a Narcity Media podcast. It's hosted and produced by me, Jacqueline Swan. Subscribe to Technality wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to never miss out on where your future is going, follow Technality's socials.